looking at the introduction in verses 1 to 3. And there we discovered six things about this book. Number one, we discovered the title, and we see that in the opening words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the counterpart of the Gospels. There we saw Christ in his humiliation and his death. Here we see Christ in his glory. Here we see Christ revealed, Christ unveiled, not only as the Lamb, which he still is, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to see Christ revealed in his glory. And then secondly, we see the content. And uh, that is borne out in verse 1 by the phrase, the things which must shortly take place. These are future things. In verse 3, this is called the words of the prophecy. And so these are future things. Now, I'm sure that's what adds to the fascination of this book. Because we live in a day when people are desperately seeking to gain some glimpse into the future. People are desperately trying to forecast what tomorrow holds. And our world is moving and changing so rapidly that there's a great sense of uncertainty today. It shouldn't surprise us that our recent president supposedly had his travel plans arranged by his wife's astrologer. And if you turn on your radio late at night, you'll oftentimes hear talk shows where you can call in to a psychic and find out what you ought to do in the future. Uh, one of the lasting impressions of Los Angeles in, in my recent visit out there was that psychics and fortune tellers were about as common as fast food restaurants. Everybody is struggling to try to find out what's coming next. Of course, some people may not want to know. Maybe you heard about the fellow who found the used magic lantern had one wish left, and so he wished that he could have a newspaper one year from today. And poof, he got it, and he opened it up to the New York stock prices, and, he, and while he was planning his strategy, he happened to flip the page and came to the obituaries, and there he found his name, describing what wonderful decisions he had made lately, but in the past tense. Most people find the future very uncertain. Have you ever found yourself saying, if I had only known? You ever do that? If I had only known, then what I know now. Well, this is God's book telling us what's going to happen in the future. So from our perspective on this world and where it's going, God is saying, now you know what's going to happen, and you ought to behave accordingly. Thirdly, we see the time. There's a word in verse 1 that we noted, and that's the word shortly. It means suddenly. There's a phrase in verse, at the end of verse 3 that says the time is near. The next event on the calendar of God is the glory of Jesus Christ, and when it happens, it's going to happen suddenly. Uh, I was noticing in the Schofield study Bible. Some of you, I know, have that Bible. He has a note there in his preface to Revelation. It says, much that is now obscure will become clear to those for whom it was written as the time approaches. Now, he wrote that about 80 years ago. And since that time, 
an awful lot has happened to really show us that the events of the tribulation period talked about here in Revelation are forming. In fact, he wrote that before Israel became a nation in 1948. And so a lot has happened to show us that we are uh, in the end time. The time is near. Fourthly, we see the writer uh, in verse 1. At the end, he identifies himself as John. John is the writer, but he received it from God through Christ, through an angel, and then he delivered it to his bondservants. And what he wrote, he calls in verse 2, the Word of God. And I don't know of any other book that starts out this way by declaring that it is the Word of God. Special book. Then fifthly, the style. And it's borne out by the word in verse 1, communicated, or your Bible may say signified. And it's a unique Greek word that means to communicate by symbols. And that's the uniqueness of the style of this book. And we said there are four types of symbols. There are those which are explained within the book. There are those which are explained by the Old Testament scriptures. There are those symbols that are explained by the culture of the New Testament time. And then there are those symbols which are explained by the context of the book. And even though this is a book that is, that is communicated by symbols, I want to remind you that we are going to take a literary, or I'm sorry, a literal approach to this book. We're not going to assume that it's symbolic unless proved otherwise. We're going to assume that we take it literally unless there's some reason for us to take it symbolically. That will be our approach to the book in understanding it. And then sixthly, we see the recipient. And in verse 1, it tells us that it is a revelation to be shown to Christ's bondservants, those whose commitment is to please him. And verse 3 promises a blessing attached for those who read and hear and heed. You know, it seems funny to me that the one book in the New Testament that invokes a special blessing on the reader should be so often left unread. You know, as you approach the book of Revelation, it's interesting to me that right from the outset, John tells us and promises us blessing. And that word really means happy. This is a happy book. In fact, there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Seven times he says, blessed are, happy are. This is a happy book. Uh, but it's only happy for those who read it and hear it and heed the words that are written in it. Now, as I reflected on last week's lesson, I realized that it was not the perfect message uh, because I only had six points. And uh, we're going to come in the book of Revelation, we're going to find that the, the number seven is very significant. Uh, it's the word, it's the perfect number. It's the, it's, the, it's the number of completion, of fullness. And so I decided to go back and edit last week's message and add a seventh point to make it the perfect message. Uh, and the seventh point is the outline. And to get the outline, we're going to have to jump out of the introduction and we're going to have to jump down to chapter 1 and verse 19 because John gives us the outline of the book right here in verse 19 of chapter 1. And I want to give that to you so that you'll have an overall structure of what's going to take place. Verse 19, write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these 
things. Three divisions of the book. He says you're to write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. Write the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then he says you shall write the things which shall take place after these things. And that's chapter 4 through the end of the book. And then if we take that last section, chapter 4 through 22, we can divide it up three ways as well. Chapters 4 to 19 is the tribulation period. Chapter 20 deals with the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And chapters 21 and 22 deal with the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. So there's our outline. It's nice when you get an outline that comes right out of the book. Uh, and John divides it up here for us in chapter 1 and verse 19. Now this morning I'd like for us to look at verses 4 through 8. And these verses constitute a salutation. Uh, most of the letters in the New Testament begin along the order of what we find in verse 4, which tells me that the first three verses were a preface. They are a preface or an introduction. And then we really begin the book, if you like, in verse 4 with the normal kind of salutation. And I might just uh, put you at ease by the fact that I know that we've only covered eight verses in two weeks. I'm not going to go this slow through the book of Revelation, but I wanted to get this introductory material out of the way. And uh, we will move more quickly, but I wanted to say verses 9 to 20 because they are a section together, and we'll be trying to look at the book of Revelation in sections together as we go through. Sometimes we'll cover whole chapters, sometimes we'll cover less, depending on how the sections divide themselves up. But four, verses 4 to 8 is a section, it is a salutation. And in this salutation, John identifies in proper first century style the writer, the readers, the greeting, and the source. First of all, the writer. Verse 4, we've already been introduced to him, but he's John. And this is John the Apostle. Though here he doesn't refer to himself as the apostle. In verse 1 he refers himself to himself as Christ's servant. And in verse 9 he refers to himself as your brother. Uh, if you'll read carefully in his gospel and his three letters, you'll find that he never gives his name. You'll never find him giving his name in the gospel of John. He refers to himself uh, in various ways there, but he never refers to himself as John. He never gives his name in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But in the book of Revelation, we find that he gives his name four times. And I'm not sure of the significance of that, but if you come up with a good idea, let me know. Secondly, we see the readers. Who's it addressed to? Verse 4, it says, John to the, <coughs> excuse me, the sev seven churches that are in Asia. Now, that's not the continent of Asia as we know it today. That's the, the Roman province of Asia. Uh, these churches that he's, that he's writing to are listed in verse 11. He says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Those are the seven churches. They form a kind of a circle in Asia Minor. And uh, we will consider them in detail when we get to chapters 2 and 3. But as with other New Testament letters, these are addressed to particular churches in the first century, but they are intended for the universal church. They're intended for us today. And then thirdly, we see the greeting. And the greeting is a customary greeting. He says, grace to you and peace. Grace is God's attitude toward us. 
that undeserved favor, peace is the result. Grace is our standing, peace is our experience. God shows me grace and peace is what I experience by the fact that God has shown me grace. And so Paul, or John says, grace to you and peace. And then fourthly, we see the source. Where do we get it from? Where do we get this grace and peace from? Notice verse 4 again. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Now I'd like you to notice the use of the words from there. They're used three times. There's a threefold source of this greeting. Number one, he says it's from him who is and who was and who is to come. And you say, well, who's that? Well, that's the Father. God the Father. I know it's not Christ because he mentions Christ at the beginning of verse 5. Christ is the third from. Uh, so he describes the Father here and he describes him as the one who is and who was and who is to come. That phrase really identifying and pointing out the fact that he is eternal. He's the God of the past, he's the God of the present, and he's the God of the future, which corresponds with the threefold division of this book in verse 19 of chapter 1. Write the things which you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are yet to come. And we deal with a God who is the same way. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. In fact, in chapter uh, 11 and verse 16 and 17, you can mark them, we won't look them up right now, but there it says that God has come and begun to reign, and there he is called the one who is and who was. And it no longer calls him the one who is to come because he has come. He is the one who is eternal. He is the one who deals with us in the present, in the past, and holds the future as well. And then there's a second source. And that is, it says in verse 4, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, who's that? Well, <clears throat> there's been a lot of, excuse me, speculation on uh, who this is referring to. And some people say these are angels, and some people say these are attributes of God. It seems clear to me from the context that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because... It's sandwiched between the Father and the Son. And he mentions these seven spirits. You say, well, are there seven spirits? Well, no, there aren't. Ephesians 4.4 makes it very clear that there is one spirit. So he calls the Spirit of God here the seven spirits. Now, seven is a significant number in the book of Revelation. And as I said before, it represents completion, fullness, and so here as he talks about the Spirit of God, he calls him, refers to him as the seven spirits that are before his throne. In fact, the, word, the number seven is used 54 times in the book of Revelation. It's very commonplace. But let me, let me show you a passage in the Old Testament that kind of uh, establishes this. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1. <laughs> and 
Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus, to the Messiah. And notice verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit, now count them. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven. Spirits. In reference to the Spirit of the Lord. And some have associated this with the candlestick of the Old Testament, which is often used symbolically of the, of the Holy Spirit. That single candlestick, and then it had branches coming out, three sets of two branches coming out to form a sevenfold candlestick in reference to the Holy Spirit. He is the seven, these are the seven aspects, if you like, of the Holy Spirit, the seven aspects and designations of His ministry. And so coming back to Revelation, we see a reference here to the seven spirits of God. We'll see this reference used later in the book of Revelation as well. I believe he's referring here to the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we see that the source in verse 5, it says, pardon me, <laughs> and from Jesus Christ. Now, so we have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now the normal... Uh, arrangement there, the normal order is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But John mentions the Son last here because he really wants to emphasize him. He's the focus of the book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ and John spends the balance of this, this uh, salutation drawing our attention to the Lord Jesus. He's the one he really wants to take off on and present to us. And he does so in the remainder of this salutation. He just emphasizes Christ and he does so in three sets of three. He's going to show us a threefold description, a threefold ascription, and a threefold subscription. That'll give you something to hang it on. First of all, he shows us a threefold description, beginning in verse 5. He says, And from Jesus Christ, notice the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Threefold description. The Lord Jesus is described here in three ways. Number one, he's called the faithful witness. The Lord Jesus is the faithful witness. All that men need to know about God is revealed through him. That's why he could say to Philip in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why John referred to him, introduced us to him in his gospel in, in chapter 1 and verse 1 and called him the Word because he is the one who communicates to us the Father. He is the faithful witness. In John chapter 18 and verse 37, Jesus is speaking to Pilate, and he says this, John chapter 18 and verse 37, he says, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Why were you born? Why did you come into the world? He says, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who communicates to us the Father. And the Greek word used here in, in Revelation chapter 1 is the word martyros, from which we get martyr, which reminds us that it cost him his life. He was a faithful witness unto death. So first of all, he's described by John as the faithful witness. Secondly, he's described as the firstborn of the dead. Now, the, first, the word firstborn was important in a Hebrew home 
because the firstborn son had that special position. He, was, he came before everyone else in time, and he came before everyone else in rank. And here the term is used of the Lord Jesus in reference to his resurrection. He's called the firstborn from the dead. He was the first in time to rise from the dead in a glorified body. You say, well, what about Lazarus? What about uh, Dorcas's son? What about other people who were raised from the dead? Well, they were raised, but they were raised back to these same bodies, only to die again. The Lord Jesus was the first to rise in a glorified body and the first to have that, that resurrected, glorified body that we will one day share. And the fact that he is the firstborn implies to us that there will be others to follow. It's the same idea as the firstfruits. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. There will be others to come behind. And that's the promise for us. And so he is first in time. He is also first in rank. He is the firstborn from the dead. And he is the supreme one in rank above all others. And then there's a third description that John gives us of the Lord Jesus in verse 5. And that is he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And Isaiah predicted that when he predicted his coming. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he said, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be the ruler of the kings of the earth. You say, well, it sure doesn't look like he's ruling. Well, you know what? He's not. The one who is in control of this world today is Satan. And he's not doing a very good job. But he is the God of this world. He is presently in control. But this book describes to us how Christ is going to take over and Christ is going to come and he is going to reign. In fact, if you just flip over a few pages to chapter 11 of Revelation, you see the indication of that in verse 15. It says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power, and thou hast begun to reign." He is the king of the kings of this earth, the ruler of this earth, but he hasn't yet taken that place. And the book of Revelation describes for us how that he will take his proper place as ruler. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.37 called him the king of heaven. The Magi in Matthew 2.2 called him the king of the Jews. Nathaniel in John 1.49 referred to him as the king of Israel. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.17 called him the king of the ages. David in Psalm 24 called him the king of glory. But here in the book of Revelation, we're going to see him revealed. Revelation 19.16 calls him the king of kings. And that's who he will be, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there's the threefold description of the Lord Jesus. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of of the kings of the earth. And then third, secondly, we see a threefold ascription. Beginning in the middle of verse 5, he says, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood 
And He has made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this is a doxology of praise to the King of Kings. He may not be reigning on this earth yet, but we can ascribe to Him that place of exaltation and authority in our lives. We can bow the knee now to the ruler of the kings of the earth even though he hasn't taken his rightful place yet because he's worthy. And John tells us why he's worthy. He gives a threefold description. He says, let's offer him glory and praise and let's give him that place of dominion in our lives because he's worthy. And he gives us three reasons why he is. He says, first of all, because he loves us. Now, it's interesting. You know, this is the only place in the New Testament where we're told that God or Christ loves us. Every other time in the New Testament, we're told that in the past tense. We're told that He loved us. And the reason for that is because He always wants to link His love with the historical evidence of that. And so it always says in the Bible, He loved us, past tense. You know, the same refers to me. This is Mother's Day, but uh, I could say to my mother, I could say, I love you. And that would be easy for me. But it would be more difficult for me to come and say, I loved you. And there was the evidence by what I did. That's the way the Lord Jesus approaches us in Scripture. He so often says, I loved you. And it's almost always linked to the cross of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved us, past tense, and he proved it by giving his life for us. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me, past tense. And the evidence of that is that he gave his life for me. And so the expression of his love is always linked to the, to the cross. But you know, I think it's nice to have this one verse in the present tense reminding us that the Lord Jesus still loves us with that same kind of love. And you know, this is something that John held very dear. Because five times in his gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, when John referred to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved, I don't think he was bragging. I don't think he was saying, I was so lovable that I'm the one that Jesus loved the most. I don't think he was saying that. In fact, John's history wouldn't show that to be true. He was the son of Zebedee, which means thunder. His dad must have had a temper like no other, so I'm sure uh, he got some of it. Uh, remember, he's the one who sent his mother to Jesus, asking if he and his brother could sit just one on the right hand and one on the left hand of the throne in the kingdom. Just a little bit arrogant there. So he wasn't the most lovable. And he wasn't saying this to brag, saying, I'm the one that Jesus loved. I think the reason he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved is because he could never quite get over the fact that Jesus actually loved him. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the same is true of you and me this morning. Because here we read of our Lord Jesus that He loves us. And the second reason why we should ascribe worship to Him is because He released us 
from our sins by his blood. And I'd like you to notice those two pronouns that appear so close together there. Our sins and his blood. Our sins, the problem. His blood, the solution. And if you want to measure the magnitude of our problem and our predicament, just look at what it cost God to deliver us from our sins. It was our sins that cost His blood. We were slaves to sin. We were bound to sin. We were captives, but He loosed us. He released us by the shedding of His blood. And then a third reason we're to ascribe praise to Him is because He made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. Not only has He released us from our former condition as slaves under sin, that's the negative side, but He has a positive side as well. He has made us to be a kingdom. Your Bible may say He's made us to be kings. It's the same idea. He's made us uh, corporately to be a kingdom. And Revelation chapter 5, verse 10 says, we will reign upon the earth. Revelation 22, 5 says, we will reign forever and ever. We are a kingdom. We have come from being slaves in sin to being kings who will reign with Christ. And not only that, but he tells us he has made us to be priests. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament economy, you'll find that there was a distinctive group uh, called the Levites that represented the others in offering sacrifices to God and in worship and in service. There was this special select group that had access to God. But when we come to the New Testament we find that every believer is a priest. Now, you need to get a hold of that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says we are a holy priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says we are a royal priesthood. We are kingly priests, which means... As a believer in Jesus Christ, I have complete access to the throne of God. I don't have to go through anybody else. I don't have to have some select group of special men who give me access to the Father. I have access. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that veil in the temple? It was torn from the top to the bottom, saying that everyone had access to the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, today, in the church... We have taken much of Judaism in the Old Testament and we've brought it into the church and it's, it's really hindered the work of the church of Jesus Christ. Because we've brought all kinds of ideas from that whole Jewish priesthood thing into the church. And we have consecrated buildings and we have uh, special altars and we have, we have men who wear robes as Old Testament robes, and we have men who, who sort of uh, give us special access to the Father. That's all Old Testament economy. In the New Testament, we are priests. You are a priest. You don't have to come through anybody else to get to the Father. You have complete access into the holy of holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made us to be kings, to reign with Him one day, and He has made us to be priests. We can offer sacrifice of praise to the Father today without the aid of anyone else. We are a royal priesthood. So John says he loves us, he loosed us, and he made us to be a kingdom and priests. And therefore, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that word dominion, you can just substitute the word authority. He's saying to him be the glory 
and to him be the authority. He may not be reigning as king now on this earth, but he's going to reign as king in my life because I ascribe to him the glory and I give him the dominion of my life today. And then thirdly, there's a threefold subscription in verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Notice verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And John adds, even so, amen. Now, this is the theme of the book in promised form because this will be the ultimate unveiling of the Lord Jesus when he comes again. And like you just noticed, three things out of verse 7, and that is he's coming with the clouds. And Scripture has a lot to say about the, the clouds when he comes back, and I don't know what, what the significance is there, but if you'll remember when Jesus was taken up the first time in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, it says he was lifted up while they were looking, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And then they were told immediately thereafter that in the same way that he went up, he will come back again. And we're told that he will come back with the clouds. Secondly, we see from this verse that he's coming publicly. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He's going to come publicly. Now, I don't think he's referring here to what we, we refer to as the rapture of the church when he comes for his church. This is his second coming in glory that he's talking about here. And he's saying, every eye will see him. Now some people say that's because we got television now and everybody's going to be sitting watching their television. I can't imagine that. You know, Everybody's sitting watching it on the television and being awed and you hear about people falling down and weeping. We, we don't believe anything we see on television. I think in some way we're all going to see that. And, and God can work out the details. Don't worry about it. We're all going to see him. And he says, even those who pierced him, you say, well, the people who pierced him are dead. How are they going to see him? Well, God can work that out too. You know, Jesus said to Caiaphas, he said, uh, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He told that to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is dead. So there may be a sense that when Jesus comes, everybody's going to view that event. But you know, beyond that, if you look more carefully at verse 7, those who pierced him is not a reference to the Roman soldiers who pierced him. Those who pierced him is a reference to Israel. And you can go back, you can mark this verse, Zechariah 12:10, and read it. And there it talks about the house of David, and it refers to them as those who pierced him will look on him whom they have pierced, it says, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for a firstborn son. That's a reference to the house of Israel. They're going to see their Messiah when he comes again. And then finally, I can say from this verse that he's coming to judge because it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And it will be a sorrowful time for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior because they're going to meet him as judge. And then notice the threefold subscription attached to the promise in verse 8. Christ's signature. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and is to come the Almighty. And I know some of your translations add a fourth little phrase in there, but it's not, not really uh, an accurate translation. I am the Alpha and Omega. That refers to the fact that he's sovereign. He is the, that's the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the one who knows it all and in control of it all from A to Z. 
the sovereign one. And then the one who is and was and is to come, that's a reference to the fact that he's the eternal one. And then he refers to himself as the almighty. That term is used ten times in the New Testament, nine of those times in the book of Revelation. And that refers to the fact that he is the omnipotent one. Sovereign, eternal, and omnipotent, all-powerful. And so in John's salutation, we're caused to focus on Christ right from the outset of this book. And we see the threefold description. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We see the threefold ascription, to him be the glory and dominion forever because he loves us, he loosed us, and he made us a kingdom and priests. And the threefold subscription, the sovereign one, the eternal one, the omnipotent one, is coming again. And next week in verses 9 to 20, we're going to see John's vision of Christ when he comes. And we're going to see what he's going to be like in verses 9 to 20. You might want to read ahead and be ready for that next Sunday. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this passage of Scripture reminds us of who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done for us. And Father, I just pray that as we are reminded of of all that he's done, that we might respond with John and say, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, and even though he hasn't set up his throne yet, Lord Jesus, I want you to be the king of my life. And I want you to rule and receive all the honor and glory and dominion in my life today and forevermore. Amen.